worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country as part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the CardioNerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. We are very excited for a really special episode today and very much honored to be joined by cardiology fellows from the Case Western Reserve University's University Hospital's Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. Drs. Jamal Hajari, Haytham Musli, and Tarek Shami. Folks, super excited to learn from you about today's very interesting case. I had the opportunity to review some of these images, so really excited to dive in. But before we do, would you mind telling the audience who you are? Thank you, Ahmed. So good morning, all. Welcome to Cleveland. My name is Haytham Musli, and I'm one of the third-year cardiology fellows at University Hospitals. First, we would like to thank you, Amit and Karen, for having us on the CardioNerds. We are big fans and we're excited to be here. I'm originally from Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. I did my residency here at University Hospitals, and I'm going to stay at UH next year for interventional cardiology. I chose UH because of the rich history of more than 150 years of teaching excellence. As for myself, I'm a budding barista in my free time. I'd like to introduce my co-fellows, Tarek Shami and Jamal Hijari. Thanks, Haytham. Thanks, Amit and Karen, for having us today. We missed Dan. My name is Tarek Shami. I'm also one of the third-year cardiology fellow here at University Hospitals. I'm originally from Aleppo, Syria. I did my medical school in my hometown. Then I moved to the States to do my internal medicine residency here at UH. I guess I liked it so much that I decided to stick around for my fellowship. I'm also doing interventional cardiology next year. I enjoy trying different restaurants and cuisine. I also enjoy drinking coffee more than making it. Sorry, Haytham. I like to spend my free time taking care of my garden and plants around the apartment. Nice, Tarek. And sure, Tarek truly loves his plants. So he has like a little garden in, in his complex apartment. So I'm Jamal Hajari, and I'm one of the third-year cardiology fellows at University Hospital as well. I am married with two kids. I'm originally from Fez, Morocco. And then I did my uh, undergrad grad, and med school at Syracuse, New York. And then I went into Emory for my residency in Atlanta, Georgia. As the plan for next year, I'm planning to stay here for electrophysiology fellowship. I choose UH because of its strong clinical program with great attendings and fellows. 
So uh, my favorite thing to do here in Cleveland is taking my wife and the kids to the beach and hiking in the metro parks, which are plenty here at Cleveland. Despite my love for cardiology and electrophysiology, I also enjoy doing construction work. As a matter of fact, I was able to renovate my entire house in my first year of fellowship. You guys, it's so great to hear from you and really excited to have you all on. And Tarek, thanks for giving Dan a shout out. He really wished he could be here today, but they've got a special holiday this weekend. And he's modeling something that I think is so important for all of us to think about as we proceed through a busy training, which is a work-life balance. So he said, I wish I could be there, but this weekend is all about family and I'm going to spend time with my beautiful wife and four children. I'm glad that he's taken a day to spend time with family. And Jamal, it's so great to know that I've got a construction worker in my backyard. I'm going to call on you when I need help around the house because I am very useful in the cath lab, I think, I would like to think, but completely useless at home. So great to have that connect. Definitely. I'm just across the street from Shaker Hat. So. <laughs> awesome. So Jamal, Tarek, Haytham, thank you for that introduction. We got such a multi-talented group of cardiologists here that maybe our talents are being described more so outside the cardiology world than inside the cardiology world. We are very excited to hear this case today. But before we get started, why don't you guys take us to your favorite place in Cleveland? Because we need a great setting for this awesome case. Thank you, Karen. So for our location, we're going to Edgewater Park to take some pictures of the skyline. For our food of choice, we're eating Vero Pizza. The best pizza west of New York with some excellent coffee. Oh, man. You guys have thought this through. So first of all, I love Vero Pizza. My wife and I, she's a NICU fellow. Sometimes if we get off of work early, we'll go and enjoy dinner at Vero Pizza. But not only did you pick good food, you picked an awesome setting. And I think Edgewater Park is just such a gorgeous way of enjoying Cleveland skyline, the beach, great trails. And so this is it. We're doing it. We're here with slices of Vero Pizza, taking a look at the water and the skyline at the park on a picnic table in Edgewater Park. Let's do what we love doing here at Cardiners when we're having a great day with friends. Let's talk some cardiology. What do you guys have for us? Thank you, Ahmed, very much. And I just like to emphasize the importance of coffee here in addition to the pizza. I don't think any cardiology fellow can be allergic to caffeine. It is the lifeblood of our industry, it's a profession, our calling. So yes, I will have to have your coffee. So let's get to the case. We'd like to present a 74-year-old female patient with metastatic left breast cancer. She was originally diagnosed in 2004 with invasive ductal carcinoma that was positive for estrogen and progesterone receptors, but she was HER2 negative. She is status post-mastectomy and chemoradiation that was complicated by recurrence six years later. She received cyclophosphamide, falvestran, then capsidabine, and most recently on venerilamine who presented with shortness of breath for several weeks. She noted dyspnea with minimal activity upon walking a few steps, but she denied chest pain or chest pressure. She was started on home oxygen of 2 liters by her oncologist. Her past medical history included the cancer with extensive hemonc follow-up. Her medications included aspirin 81 mg daily, lorazepam 0.5 mg twice daily as needed, and venerilabine. Her oncologist recently tried a course of levofloxacin for shortness of breath without any FL. She has no history of heart failure or coronary artery disease. Moving to the social history, she denied history of tobacco use, alcohol, or recreational medications. She's a retired teacher. She, like myself, enjoys one to two cups of coffee a day. 
and her family history included hypertension, but no history of cancer. So Tariq, what's on your differential? Hi, Tham. Shortness of breath in a cancer patient. Always a very wide differential that comes along with it. I will start with the classic non-cardiac causes of dyspnea, which include pulmonary embolism, anemia, radiation-induced lung disease, and metastatic lung disease. My top differential for this patient, given her history of cancer, will be pulmonary embolism. But hey, guys, this is a cardio nerds episode, so we need to shift our focus to cardiac etiologies, which are numerous. Jamal, can you walk us through a potential cardiac causes of her dyspnea? Definitely. I agree with you, Tarek. Dyspnea has a broad differential. In terms of cardiac causes and the setting of chemotherapy and radiation therapy, pericardial disease, radiation valvular disease, heart failure, and infiltrative cardiomyopathies are among the top etiologies in this clinical setting. I would like to hear more about the physical exam to be able to narrow the differential diagnosis further. You guys, this is a beautiful differential diagnosis at this point, and it's a differential diagnosis that takes our patient into account. And specifically, she's got what sounds like advanced breast cancer. And so when I have a patient with any kind of cancer who's coming in with almost any clinical syndrome, I think three things. One, it could be a consequence of the cancer itself, whether it's a recurrence, invasion, perineoplastic, or direct local effect. Two, it could be a consequence of the management, whether it's from radiation, the chemotherapy, biologics, or however else you choose to treat the cancer. And three, just thinking about base rates, they are also still susceptible to all of the non-cancerous ideologies for dyspnea, chest pain, and etc. And so we'll definitely keep our base rates into account as well. My second point is that <laughs> I very much think that pulmonary embolism is a cardiac ideology, and there's so much overlap there. And I'm glad that's on the differential also. No, that's great, Amit. Definitely, you did touch on a good point. Yes. Just before we move on to the physical exam, and thanks for, again, opening our eyes to that there is a broad differential when we think about cancer and shortness of breath, it's worthwhile also to think about what setting this patient is presenting in, as the context obviously matters, whether they're presenting in the outpatient setting, whether they're presenting to the emergency department, and that will help organize what kind of workup we'll do and what kind of steps we take next. So would you be able to let us know where she's presenting a little bit more information on the timeline of her symptoms. Is the symptom started with chemotherapy initiation? Is it removed from the chemotherapy initiation? And is she showing up at the hospital or in your office? That's a great point, Karen. Thank you very much. So she presented actually with several weeks history of exertion of shortness of breath. And she presented to her oncologist in the outpatient setting who tried her a course of oral antibiotics with levofloxacin without any avail. And after that, she was started on home oxygen at two liters, which was not very beneficial. And subsequently, she presented to the emergency room. Thanks, guys. I think that's helpful information. And especially when we start to think about the causes of shortness of breath in patients with malignancy. And again, as you guys are all thinking about and all mentioning, there's a wide variety of causes. But one of the things that I particularly pay attention to is the timeline between the initiation of chemo and radiation and this initiation of symptoms. Because we know that things like chemotherapy, whether we're using immunotherapy, there can be sometimes immediate effects. And it wasn't immunotherapy that was described right now. But other things we also have to remember is that patients with radiation therapy, they can develop symptoms years later, if not up to decades later. They can also develop symptoms acutely. 
So understanding that context is really helpful, and I appreciate you guys breaking that down for us. That's a great point, Karen. As you alluded, so she received the cyclophosphamide many years ago, and most recently she has been on the venerilidine, and there was no immunotherapy as you touch base on that. And her radiation therapy was remote, but as you explained correctly, that typically we see radiation-induced heart disease years later after receiving radiation therapy. So why don't you guys take us to the physical exam? We're looking forward to seeing what you found and how that's going to narrow our differential further. Absolutely. So going to the emergency room, her vital signs were significant for a temperature of 36.6 Celsius and a heart rate of 102 with a blood pressure of 113 over 48. She was setting 100% on three liters of oxygen through the nasal cannula. Her exam demonstrated an alert and oriented female with regular rhythm, but she was mildly tachycardic. There was a noted muffled heart sounds with jugular venous distension to the chin that failed to reduce with inspiration. Her chest exam showed equal breast sounds bilaterally with no significant crackles or wheezes. Her abdomen was soft and lax with no significant organomegaly or distension, and she had plus one pitic edema in bilateral legs, but her pulses were equal. Tarek, can you explain to us the cosmal sign and what are some of the causes of it? I'm glad that you asked that. So as you know, cosmal sign is the paradoxical rise in the jugular venous pressure with inspiration. Normally, during inspiration, there is a decrease in the intrathoracic pressure, which leads to an increase in the venous return to the right side of the heart, with an associated decrease in the jugular venous pressure. When there is an impaired filling of the right ventricle, there is preferential return of blood from the inferior vena cava compared to impaired venous return from the superior vena cava, and therefore the jugular veins instead become engorged. Some causes of cosmal sign include right ventricular infarction, severe right ventricular failure, restrictive cardiomyopathy, constrictive pericarditis, and tricuspid stenosis. Haytham, that was an excellent detailed history. And Tarek, that was a great explanation of cosmal sign. Just to summarize the case, so we have a 70-year-old woman with metastatic breast cancer diagnosed 20 years ago. And she underwent multiple regimens of chemotherapy, as well as multiple sessions of radiation therapy. So now she's presenting with shortness of breath for several weeks. Her social and family history is pretty much unremarkable. Her presenting exam is significant for hypoxia, tachycardia, cosmal sign, and muffled heart sounds, and one plus person edema. So based on what we have now, we will be able to narrow the differential diagnosis a little bit further, and then we can adjust the priorities here. I think that was an excellent summary that you guys gave about the physical exam, the course leading up to that point. I think it's worth taking a moment just to step back on Kusmal's sign and its presence. And you guys outlined that extremely well in that there is a rise in inspiration in the jugular venous pressure due to a non-compliant right-side filling pressures. And that can occur for many different reasons, including constrictive pericarditis, severe TR can cause it as well. But one of the points that I think it's worth noting as well, it's not just a rise in inspiration, but a failure to fall in the jugular venous pressure with inspiration, which I think you guys are noting as well. And the other aspect that I think a colloquial term that we hear, you lose the why, you die, meaning that if you no longer see a Y descent in the jugular venous pressure, that's highly concerning for tamponade. And so an important point that you guys are outlining here 
is that we have someone with a significant jugular venous distension, but whether we are truly seeing a wide descent in that jugular venous pressure is not clear. And so it's an important thing to keep on our differential when we're thinking about emergency situations with shortness of breath. And I'm excited to hear how you guys broke down this differential next. So we agree with you, Karen. So let's narrow our differential based on what we have so far. So given the tachycardia, hypoxia, and cancer history, mixed pulmonary embolism is still high on the list, and then it's a non-misdiagnosis. However, the muffled heart sounds and the GVD mixed pericardial effusion with tamponade physiology in non-misdiagnosis. And then add in the sign is something that we have to keep in our mind, which is usually common with constriction, especially in the setting of patients who has radiation therapy. And then given that she has this muffled heart sound and the GVD, this reminds me of Beck's triad of tamponade, which includes hypotension, GVD, and muffled heart sounds. And honestly, it would be embarrassing to miss the diagnosis as Claude Beck was a professor at Case Western University. It will be interesting to know how the emergency room approached this patient in these clinical settings. Haytham, would you mind going through what was obtained? And just before, Haytham, you go forward, I think just to reiterate the point that there's evidence that potentially on exam that there could be a pulmonary embolism. There's evidence that there's potentially distant heart sounds indicating uh, pericardial fusion and tamponade with the elevated neck veins, as you mentioned, Beck's triad. But there's also this small sign that we typically do not see in tamponade. So there's still more to piece together regarding this story. Yeah, Haytham, would you be able to tell us what happened in the emergency department? Absolutely, Karen. So as you mentioned, this patient, she had X features of uh, pericardial effusion with a concern for tamponade. And of course, on the differential diagnosis, PE was also still there, but she had the Cosmos sign, which doesn't exactly fit the picture of uh, pericardial effusion with tamponade. So that's something just to keep in mind as we go through the case. So in the emergency room, they thought the exact same thing, and they ordered a CT and geography to rule out pulmonary embolism, and there was no evidence of filling defect to suggest a PE. However, there was a moderate-sized pericardial effusion and a moderate bilateral pleural effusion and evidence of metastatic disease extending into the mediastinum. Good. So at least now we can sit back and think at least PE is not on the differential. We can rule it out. However, given that she has pleural effusions and moderate pericardial effusion, I will be still concerned about tamponade physiology. However, pleural effusion now is added to the dyspnea as a differential diagnosis. So it would be interesting to have more labs and then decide what step should we go further from here. So do you mind, Haytham, if you can tell us more about the EKG and any significant labs? Absolutely, Jamal. So her EKG demonstrated sinus tachycardia without typical features of acute pericarditis or ischemic ST or T wave changes. Her labs were significant for a white cell count of 7.9, hemoglobin of 12.5 with a hematocrit of 37.7, with a platelet of 259. Her sodium was 130, potassium 3.6, chloride of 82, bicarb of 29, BUN of 15, creatine of 0.38, glucose of 106. Her LFTs demonstrated an ALT of 66, an AST of 50, alkaline phosphatase of 100, total bilirubin of 2.8, albumin of 3.4, and total protein of 6.4. Based on this labs, definitely we can at least near our differentials. So definitely we can get the anemia out of the pictures, given that her hemoglobin is normal. And then also given that she has one plus person edema, definitely the liver, it seems like functioning fine. The kidney function is okay. So definitely we can narrow those. 
So now it still has something to do with the chest. It's either the lungs or the heart. So it will be interesting to tackle the pleurofusion first and then obtain an echocardiogram to assess it further. And at this point, just thinking about where we are, we're really trying to isolate what is the etiology of this patient's symptoms. And Osler said that there is no disease more conducive to clinical humility than aneurysm of the aorta. And I think it would be fair to say that there is no disease also as conducive to clinical humility as diseases of the pericardium. Because by the time that we have symptoms, it was pretty undifferentiated, the broad differential diagnosis in a host with advanced breast cancer. And then we had a physical exam that started to point us towards potentially a cardiac etiology with elevated filling pressures. But even we consider the Beck's triad is what hypotension, muffled heart sounds, and distended JVP, it's quite insensitive, so we can't rely on that. And moreover, she was normotensive with a systolic blood pressure, I think, in the 140s, if I recall correctly. And then the patient has Kussmaul sign, which is also quite nonspecific in that it can be seen really with any sort of hemodynamically meaningful right-sided heart disease. And so these signs are not very sensitive, not very specific, but they certainly raise our clinical suspicion for things that, okay, like now we have to look for these number of ideologies of right-sided dysfunction and elevated filling pressures. The CT scan, in addition, helped us rule out a pulmonary embolism and pointed us towards a pericardial effusion and pleural effusion, both of which can cause symptoms and can track with elevated right-sided filling pressures. And at this point, we're wondering, okay, is this pericardial effusion hemodynamically significant? The patient is normotensive. But of course, we can have a patient who's normotensive with a pericardial effusion that is hemodynamically significant. And so that itself is not entirely comforting. And one patient I had was when I was a resident in a CICU, was a transfer for shortness of breath, had ESRD on a chest x-ray, had a large cardiac silhouette. The patient was hypertensive, not very tachycardic. Heart rate was in the 90 to 100 range. And I started doing a bedside echocardiogram. And as I found a massive pericardial effusion with chamber collapse, and at the time I didn't know too much more about the use of Doppler to identify tamponade physiology, the lactic came back at nine and the liver enzymes were the multiple thousands. This patient was in a low flow state and essentially shock physiology from tamponade that was immediately relieved with pericardiosynthesis, but was normotensive. When we think about that CT called a moderate pericardial effusion, CTs tend to overcall these, but depending on the rapidity of accumulating a pericardial effusion, it doesn't necessarily correlate with whether or not the patient's going to develop tamponade physiology. You can have a large effusion that develops over time that is well-tolerated, or a very small effusion that develops very acutely, for instance, after a procedure that can be very poorly tolerated. And so at this point, yeah, we should maybe take a look at the pleural effusion and see if that's the cause of the dyspnea. But either way, we definitely, and I agree with you guys, we need to get an echocardiogram, maybe do a bedside check for a pulsus paradoxus to see if there is a hemodynamically significant pericardial effusion in this patient. So definitely concerned here. Definitely need more information. Glad you guys are on it. And just to add to what Ahmed had just mentioned there, tachycardia has been shown to be one of the most sensitive findings for patients that have hemodynamically significant pericardial fusion leading to tamponade. And of course, we could not have a graduate of the Osler Residency Program on the podcast without making an Osler quote. So I'm glad that uh, <laughs> Dr. Goyle here amended Dr. Osler's famous quote, because it truly is a humbling disease. So tell us, guys, what happened next? So this patient, she was admitted to the floor, and she underwent thoracentesis on the right lung. However, her shortness of breath did not improve 
Therefore, the primary team ordered a surface echocardiogram that demonstrated an ejection fraction of 65%, a moderate pericardial effusion, and an IVC that was dilated to 2.5 centimeter with insignificant collapse on SNF. However, interestingly, she had a thick pericardium of 1 centimeter, and she had significant respirophasic tricuspid and mitral inflow variation. Okay, Haytham. So based on her echocardiogram, now we can exclude some of the causes of her shortness of breath like valvular heart disease and systolic heart failure. And as you guys all were thinking, we're all about this tamponade now. So tamponade is a truly clinical diagnosis. I agree with all of you that there might be some concerning feature on this echocardiogram, which are the moderate pericardial effusion, the dilated IVC with no significant collapse, and there is prophasic variation in the tricuspid and the mitral inflow. I don't know if I see some early RV diastolic collapse. I agree with you, Tarek. Tamponade is a clinical diagnosis. Now, Jamal, can you take us over the mechanism behind tamponade and what are the different presentations? Sure, yeah. So tamponade physiology is defined as once the pericardial elastic limit is reached, the individual chambers must compete with intrapericardial fluid for a fixed intrapericardial volume. As the tamponade progresses, the cardiac chambers become smaller and the diastolic compliance is reduced and then patients can start having symptoms. In terms of patient presentation, there are four types of tamponade. The first type, acute cardiac tamponade, which is a life-threatening as you guys mentioned, and usually patients present with hypertension, dyspnea, tachycardia, and sometimes shock. The second one is subacute cardiac tamponade, which is on the other hand usually less dramatic the patient usually presents complaining of dyspnea, fatigue, neuropulse pressure, and that's mainly due to low stroke volume, such as our patient in this clinical scenario here. And then uh, there is a low pressure cardiac tamponade, which is due to hypovolemia, and this can be caused by overdiuresis or acute blood loss in the setting of feeding, in which patients have a low intracardiac pressure. Lastly, there is a regional cardiac tamponade in which a loculated, eccentric, or localized hematoma produces tamponade physiology typically by compressing specific chamber. This condition usually happens in post-cardiac procedures. So now let's go back to our patient. Haytham, did the patient have pulses paradoxes? Yes, Jamal, there was a pulses paradoxus of 16 millimeter mercury. Wow, that was high. So pulses paradoxus, it's not an easy physical exam to do but I usually enjoy teaching the residents in the middle of the night how to check a pulses paradoxus. <laughs> Difficult, Jamal. Usually what I tell them to do, as you know, we don't have manual blood pressure cuffs that are not available. We usually have to hunt one down. And then once we have that one, we examine the patient, make sure we're using the right arm that we're able to take the blood pressure. Like in this patient, we have to avoid the side that she has surgery. But then once we inflate the cuff, until I can no longer auscultate the corticoff sounds. Then I have them slowly deflate the cuff until I can auscultate the cuff intermittently and usually on expiration, but not on inspiration. Then we note the blood pressure. Then I have them lower the cuff even more until we can hear on both inspiration and expiration, and then we note the second blood pressure. And the difference is the pulses paradoxes. And then also, if you want to teach a group of medical students Doppler will be another useful way to do it. 
That was actually an awesome explanation of how to properly obtain a pulses paradoxes. And I kind of wish you were my senior resident when I was a third year medical student because I was having the patient do all sorts of weird breathing exercises to try to differentiate it. And it definitely didn't work out. So that's very useful. And so understand, you're slowly going down and deflating the blood pressure cuff until the very first point you can hear the top sounds, and you only hear it during expiration. And so that's a point where blood pressure is decreasing during inspiration below the compression of the sphygmomanometer, and you only hear when the blood pressure raises to a level where it can squeeze through that inflated cuff. And so in this setting, you have a rise in blood pressure in expiration and a decrease in inspiration. And then you continue to decrease the blood pressure cuff pressure until you hear the tap sounds both in inspiration and expiration. And so essentially you get to a point where the blood pressure is high enough that even if it drops in inspiration, you still hear it and you can still squeak past the pressure of the blood pressure cuff. And that decreases normal during normal hemodynamics without tamponade. It's just exaggerated during tamponade. So rather than pulses paradoxus, it's almost like a pulses exaggeratus. But what's happening in the heart that leads us to see decreased blood pressure during inspiration that is exaggerated with tamponade physiology? So uh, what's happening is that's usually when you take a deep breath. So in the inspiration, your intrathoracic pressure is low. That means your right side of the preload is going to increase, which is going to lead to uh, filling to the right atrium and then the right ventricle, and then you are going to shift the septum to the left ventricle. So definitely the blood pressure is going to be low because of the low stroke volume. Then on expiration, the opposite happens. That's when uh, your intrathoracic pressure is high, then your right ventricle pressures are low, but the left ventricle, there is more volume comes into the RA, to the LV, and then the septum now shifts to the right side. And now you have high stroke volume, and then you will have high blood pressure. That's perfect. So what you're saying is when you inspire, you essentially create a vacuum in the thorax that's going to suck blood in from the IVC into the right side. And as the right side drinks all that blood, as Dan would say, it's drinking all that blood in diastole. And normally it's not a big deal. It's got plenty of room to expand and fill itself up as it's drinking all that extra blood in diastole. But when there's tamponade, it doesn't have a lot of room to expand. And so when the right side is drinking all this gush of blood during inspiration, the septum shifts towards the left side, impeding left-sided diastolic blood flow. So when the RV's drinking, the LV has a hard time drinking. And so that decreased preload in the LV on inspiration is going to lead to a decreased stroke volume from the LV during inspiration, and therefore a drop in systolic blood pressure. So that makes a lot of sense and really helps us contextualize why you get this pulses paradoxus that we see in tamponade physiology. So that's awesome. What did you guys do next? Because right now we have positive pulses paradoxes, or shall I say pulses exaggeratus, in that it's above the threshold of 10 millimeters of mercury, it's at 16. And our concern for this patient is only going higher and higher and higher. Absolutely, Ahmed. So I guess now we're very concerned about tamponade. So Tarek, would you mind taking us over the echocardiographic features of tamponade? Great, Haytham. So the major echocardiographic signs of tamponade are the presence of pericardial effusion, the small cardiac chambers, and the plethoric IVC. There are additional supportive signs that are related to either increase in the pericardial pressure, like the right-sided chamber collapse, usually the RA collapse at end diastole during atrial relaxation, when the RA volume is minimal and the pericardial pressure is maximal. Diastolic collapse of the RV is more specific, but less sensitive. 
The other signs are related to increase in the ventricular interdependence, which are the respirophasic septal shift and the change in the transvalvular velocities. The cutoff values for changes in the transvalvular velocity cited in the latest guidelines were greater than 30% decrease in the mitral inflow and greater than 60% increase in the tricuspid inflow. And this is on the first cardiac cycle after inspiration. That was fantastic walking us through the echocardiographic findings of tamponade. But you guys made an interesting point there, and I think it's worth clarifying and also hammering home about what the variation in the atrioventricular valves with respiration should be in tamponade versus potentially considering constriction. Could you just clarify that for us? Very correct, Karen. Cutoff values for tamponade are higher than constrictive pericarditis. In the latest guidelines published by the American Society of Echocardiography in 2013 by Dr. Klein, the cutoff values were 30% across the mitral valve and 60% across the tricuspid valve. Whereas in constrictive pericarditis, the cutoff values are lower. They are 25% across the mitral valve and 40% across the tricuspid valve. Thanks for making that point. So what happened next? Sounds like she's headed to the cath lab. Absolutely correct. So Weymouth routinely performed one of our hemodynamic guru, took her to the cath lab for both uh, right heart cath and pericardiosynthesis. Was it Dr. Osman? Of course it was Dr. Osman. So her initial hemodynamics showed an RA mean pressure of 20 millimeter mercury with a blunted wide descent, an RV pressure of 48 over 20 millimeter mercury with a mean of 25, PA pressure of 50 over 25 with a mean of 38 millimeter mercury and a wedge pressure of 27 millimeter mercury with a cardiac index of 2.0. Wow, let's go over this number. So definitely she has equalization of diastolic pressures, which is known here to have an RA pressure of 20 and then RV diastolic pressure of 20 millimercury and then a wedge of 27 with a mean of 38. So definitely this is equalization of diastolic pressures. And then the interesting thing in her waveform, it seemed like there's a blunt uh, wide descent on the RA waveform. So as we know, pericardial pressure is applied equally throughout systole and diastole. But since the heart has the lowest atrial pressures in a diastole, it is disproportionately affected. This then causes blunting of early diastolic filling, which correlates with the wide descent. This abnormality occurs relatively early in tamponade, Equilibration between RA pressure and pericardial pressure is also seen in early in this process. In advanced stages of tamponade, the RA pressure waveforms appears as undiluting and flat lines without discernible E and V waves or X and Y descent. Thanks, guys. That was a great overview of the changes in the RA pressure waveform of tamponade. And I'm just thinking back to Curran's adage that you lose a Y, you die. So my earlier degree of concern is only exponentially increased since learning about these waveforms and um, definitely excited to hear what happens next. I'm so glad that she's under your care. Thank you very much, Amit. So she underwent pericardiosynthesis and they aspirated 200 cc of bloody effusion. Well, that's a good amount. As we know, normally the pericardial sac can hold up to 50 cc's, but up to 150, then you start developing signs of tamponade physiology. So 200 definitely is not a small amount. So the causes for effusions are idiopathic and most likely viral, but we don't know as much. But definitely there is certainly other autoimmune causes such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and scleroderma. 
And then something that we should not miss that we see once in a while, it's chest trauma, which is going to be outside or iatrogenic or uh, post-procedures most commonly like ablations, like VT ablation or even AFib ablation that we do commonly now. And then usually patients who have either open heart surgeries for either bypass or valve, usually they can come in and then have some fusion. And that's mainly due to the inflammation that's created by the open heart surgery. And the metabolic disease, like thyroid disease in hypo or hyperthyroidism, kidney failure, and stagional disease patients is very common to have effusions. And then drugs such as procunamide, hydralazine, and then obviously new plastic causes, which we see commonly now. And then in terms of infectious, definitely viral is the most common one. And then I think that's why we categorize all our patients as idiopathic. Is viral, that's probably we don't know. And then one thing that's probably not as common here, but definitely it's very common where I did my training is tuberculosis. I mean, I think it's more common in third world countries, but definitely still common in certain states in the United States. I think important thinking about this patient specifically is that, as you guys mentioned expertly off the top, was radiation therapy in and itself can lead to cardiac issues and specifically can lead to constricted pericarditis, can lead to pericardial fusion, and it can be a delayed onset even up to 20 years after the radiation therapy. Some of the risk factors for that depend on the amount of radiation that was administered, how much of the heart was in the radiation field, how long the patient got radiation therapy. But one of the key points is remembering that radiation can also lead to damage to the myocardium. And if it leads to a restrictive picture, then many of the findings that we see with constriction or tamponade may not be present if that septum is restricted in its movement and may not lead to as much intraventricular dependence. So having a high suspicion for concomitant diagnoses, especially in patients with radiation therapy, is important. Yeah, so that was a great overview of the differential diagnosis for pericardial effusion. And yes, I totally agree, Karen. Specific to this patient, I think the things to wonder about are, is this radiation-induced? Is this malignant? Or is this infectious from being immunocompromised in the context of chemotherapy? And all of these are going to be important considerations for her moving forward. Thanks, Ahmed and Karen. That's a great overview. And I can't emphasize more the importance of the differential diagnosis that you alluded to, including the time frame for radiation-induced heart disease and the other etiologies such as restrictive cardiomyopathy, and that the tamponade findings might be atypical in the setting of these conditions. So unfortunately, the patient continued to have symptoms despite both pericardiosynthesis and thoracynthesis. And her repeat hemodynamics in the cath lab post-pericardiosynthesis showed an RA pressure of 12, an RV pressure of 31 over 12, a PA pressure of 30 over 10, a wedge of 13 millimeter mercury. However, this time she had a rapid wide descent, as you guys can see on the hemodynamic tracing. Wow, it's interesting. So her symptoms definitely did not improve initially with thoracentesis, and then it didn't even improve with the pericardiosynthesis. Her film pressure definitely improved. However, they are still high, given her eye pressure with 12, and then she still had the wide descent. But the most notable in the hemodynamics here is that she has equalization of diastolic pressures with this rapid wide descent. It's more concerning for constrictive physiology. And as we know, constrictive pericarditis is when the upper limit of the cardiac volume is constrained by the elastic pericardium, which is the opposite in tamponade physiology. So in a thickened, rigid pericardium prevents the expansion of the heart to accommodate the increased venous return with respiratory cycles. 
So like, for example, during inspiration, as we alluded before, you have decreased intrathoracic pressure, which basically allow more suction of the blood from the IBC and SVC to the RA, to the RV. And then you will shift to the left because your pressures are high in the left side, and then it will lead to shifting into ventricular septum. And this is the opposite happens with expiration, which you are going to have high intrathoracic pressure, and then the blood is going to return back to the LA, back to the LV, and then now the septum is going to shift to the right. This is a little bit different than tamponade physiology in terms of the constraint of the sac. So it will be interesting to know what happened to the patients because now I'm more concerned about constrictive rather than a tamponade. So the patient was admitted to the cardiac intensive care unit. Her post-pericardiosynthesis echocardiogram continued to demonstrate significant mitral inflow variation with a plethoric IBC. However, this time she only had trivial to small pericardial effusion, and she showed some shuddering of the septum. Interestingly, her lateral E-prime was 9, but the medial E-prime was even higher at 11, which is consistent with annulus reverses. And the mitral inflow pattern was restrictive. And unfortunately, we don't have a hepatic vein doppler handy. Okay, Haysam. So interestingly, this patient had initially presented with tamponade. And despite undergoing pericardiosynthesis, her symptoms and hemodynamic worsened with more pronounced constrictive physiology now. This makes me think of infusive constrictive pericarditis. There was an interesting article in Jack Imaging published by Dr. J.O. and his group from the Mayo Clinic about effusive constrictive pericarditis after pericardiosynthesis. They showed that patients with effusive constrictive pericarditis had a higher medial E-prime velocities and more risk-prophasic septal shift on echocardiogram. Hi, Sam. Cardiac MRI is also an emerging tool to aid in the diagnosis of pericardial disease. By any chance, did this patient have an MRI? Well, as you know, Tarek, we have a top-notch imaging center with a dedicated cardiac MRI and dedicated cardiac CT scanner that cardiology reads. So, of course, she underwent a cardiac MRI. What did it show? Exactly what we discussed about. As you can see on the sagittal view images on real-time free-breathing cardiac MR, when the diaphragm drops, there was respirophasic septal motion suggestive of interventricular dependence. On the delayed enhancement images, there is late gadolinium enhancement around the thick pericardium of more than one centimeter, demonstrating inflammation. Wow, amazing MRI images, Haitham. Yeah, I agree with Sarah, great images. So what was the etiology of the pericardial effusion? Well, her cytology was positive for malignancy, so it was a malignant pericardial effusion. So what happened to the patient? From my understanding, the typical treatment for effusive constrictive is anti-inflammatory treatment for a few months with reassessment of symptoms. However, this patient's pericardial effusion was part for malignancy. It's unclear if anti-inflammatory will work in this situation or not. She followed up in the clinic eight weeks later, and she continued to be symptomatic despite maximal medical therapy with anti-inflammatory agents. So she was admitted to the hospital and she underwent pericardial stripping with subsequent resolution of her symptoms. She did quite well after surgery and was discharged home with follow-up with thoracic surgery and cardiology. Patient continued to receive chemotherapy for her metastatic cancer with hemonc. Impressive case, I I agree. It was an excellent case with impressive hemodynamics data and imaging. And most importantly, a great outcome for the patient's care. Guys, thank you so much for highlighting this case. 
because it really shows the incredible spectrum of disease that we see for pericardial disease. From the inflammatory perspective, it's a continuum from acute pericarditis, recurrent pericarditis, chronic pericarditis, and a burned out phase. And from the constrictive end, transient constriction, effusive constrictive disease, chronic constrictive physiology, and then sort of a burned out calcific hardened pericardium, like what Dan would call the locked box that constrains the heart. And you see these sort of on this continuum of inflammation, where anti-inflammatory therapies can be very useful, and then all the way through this constrictive physiology end stage where you can maybe perhaps try diuresis, but you probably need a mechanical solution like pericardiectomy as this patient received. And so again, just really highlights the range of pathology within pericardial disease and the nuanced approach to take care of this patient. And in this particular setting, also highlights that within the spectrum, you can have these situations of acute, severe hemodynamic illness where it's all hands on deck and you've got to do something emergently to save a life. So this case, I think, really highlights the capabilities of what you guys do over there, the incredible training. Thank you so much for all the teaching that you did. It's a multidisciplinary heart team approach with advanced imaging and interventional cardiology and eventually surgical management of this patient. I'd love to hear at this point what each of you love about cardiology, why you decided to become a cardiologist, and what makes your hearts flutter about training at UH Cardiology Fellowship? I chose UH because of the rich history of more than 150 years of teaching excellence. I chose cardiology because cardiology impacts every field in medicine. And what fascinates me the most is how expansive is the field. If you want to do imaging, you'll get to do echoes, CT scans, MRIs, and nuclear medicine. If you like to do procedures, you can do cath procedures or electrophysiologic procedures. If you like heart failure, you have the option to do mechanical support and critical care. And the field is ever expanding with new technologies. That's what led me to choose university hospitals for its rich history of more than 150 years of excellence in science and research. And we continue to strive and push the field forward. I love taking care of the sickest patient in dedicated and a humble way. Cardiology as a field encompasses it all in terms of procedure, imaging, prevention, and ICU. I really love the critical thinking in addition to be able to do procedures and get immediate gratification for the patient. I chose UH because it provides you with wide variety of pathologies. There's a great collegiality between fellows, house staff, and attendings. I know staying at UH will prepare me to be ready for my future career. The volume is amazing. There's a lot of research opportunities from benchmark to clinical science and studies. And we as the fellows all have our back. I picked cardiology for many reasons, but most importantly, the acuity and the complexity of the patient's population. That requires the clinician to understand the pathophysiology of disease as well as understand the hemodynamics in depth. Furthermore, cardiology has many invasive and non-invasive procedures that allows the clinician to take a better care of his patient. Why did I choose UH? Because UH has a complex and diverse patient population that exposed me to a diverse pathology. UH trained me well that now I feel confident to go out and take care of broad patient population from prevention in the outpatient clinic to advanced heart failure patients requiring mechanical support. That sounds truly wonderful. And thank you to all of you for sharing this case. 
again, to emphasize the value of a multidisciplinary team, a team that works together, a team that takes things step by step to really help a patient who's struggling. And I don't think there could be anything more valuable than being able to think through a case to make someone feel better. So congratulations to all of you. And it's just been so exciting to hear about your program, this case. And seems like everyone on the podcast today is in Cleveland except me. So I am going to have to drive out to this pizza place with all of you guys as soon as possible to grab a slice with you guys. Definitely cheers to that. Thanks, guys. For the ECPR segment, I would like to introduce our expert content and our program director, Dr. Brian Hoyt. He's going to give us some clinical pearls on effusive constrictive pericarditis. The pericardium consists of visceral and parietal components. The visceral pericardium is a mesothelial monolayer that adheres firmly to the epicardial surface of the heart, reflects over the origin of the great vessels, and becomes the serosal layer of the parietal pericardium, a tough fibrous tissue that forms a sac surrounding the heart. Between these two layers is the pericardial space, which contains up to 50 mils of pericardial fluid. When larger amounts of pericardial fluid expose the limited ability of the pericardium to stretch, or when the pericardium becomes scarred and inelastic, one of three pericardial compressive syndromes may ensue. Cardiac tamponade, characterized by the accumulation of pericardial fluid under pressure. Constrictive pericarditis, the result of scarring and loss of the normal elasticity of the pericardial sac, which limits diastolic filling of the ventricles, and effusive constrictive pericarditis, or ECP, characterized by the concurrence of a tense pericardial effusion and constriction of the heart by the visceral pericardium. ECP usually results in a mixed hemodynamic picture with features of both tamponade and constriction. Patients with ECP are often mistakenly thought to have only tamponade, but persistent elevation of right atrial pressure after drainage of the pericardial fluid and normalization of pericardial pressure, point to the underlying constrictive process. While constriction and tamponade share several features in common, they diverge according to the manner in which diastolic filling of the ventricles is altered. Features common to tamponade and constriction include heightened ventricular interdependence, increased respiratory variation of ventricular inflow velocities, and elevated and equal diastolic pressures. As the nerds noted, pulses paradoxus may be present in constriction, but is more commonly seen in clinically evident tamponade. A number of features distinguish tamponade from constriction. In tamponade, early diastolic filling is impaired secondary to increased pericardial pressure throughout the cardiac cycle, whereas in constriction, early diastolic filling is maintained and pericardial restraint does not become important until mid to late diastole. Accordingly, the wide descent is blunted in tamponade and exaggerated in constriction. In tamponade, the pericardial space is open and transmits the respiratory swings of pleural pressure to the heart, whereas in constriction, the obliterated pericardial space prevents that transmission, resulting in a dissociation of pleural and cardiac pressures. In tamponade, systemic venous return increases with inspiration. The right heart enlarges and encroaches on the left, whereas in constriction, Systemic venous return does not increase with inspiration under resting conditions. Instead, transmission of the negative pleural pressure to the pulmonary veins decreases the gradient for left heart filling, which results in an inspiratory right-to-left movement of the ventricular septum. 
In tamponade, there is a uniform inspiratory decrease in diastolic pressures, whereas in constriction, the right atrial pressure is either constant or increases during inspiration, small sign, and there is an inspiratory fall in wedge pressure. These similarities and differences are responsible for the physical signs and the echo and hemodynamic findings of ECP, which conceptually can be considered as a hybrid of constriction and tamponade. Prevalence estimates of ECP vary widely and depend on the nature of the cohort studied and therefore the etiology of ECP. The methods used to diagnose ECP, that is invasive catheterization or echocardiogram, and the manner in which ECP is defined. For example, in one series of 95 patients undergoing surgery for constriction, 24% were diagnosed with ECP. In another series of 190 patients with tamponade who underwent pericardiocentesis and cardiac catheterization, ECP was diagnosed in 15 patients, or 8%. In a more contemporary series from the Mayo Clinic, effusive constrictive pericarditis following pericardiocentesis was diagnosed in 33 of 205 patients, or 16%. ECP was defined by respiratory variation of early diastolic mitral velocity, or the E-wave, greater than 25%, and either a respirophasic septal shift, hepatic vein expiratory diastolic flow reversals, or increased early diastolic mitral septal annular velocity, E-prime, to a level higher than the lateral mitral E-prime so-called annulus reversus, on a post-procedure echocardiogram. In a series of 68 patients with proven or presumptive tuberculous pericardial effusion, effusive constrictive disease was present in just over half. Interestingly, compared with patients having effusive disease, pre-pericardiocentesis right atrial pressure was higher, and a cytokine profile consistent with chronic unresolving inflammation and fibrosis was observed. Most cases of ECP are idiopathic, reflecting the frequency of idiopathic pericardial disease in general. Other reported causes include radiation, malignancy, chemotherapy, infection, and post-surgical iatrogenic pericardial disease. Tuberculosis is a frequent cause of ECP in regions where tuberculosis is common. As might be expected, patients with ECP usually present with clinical features of pericardial effusion and tamponade, constriction, or both, and are therefore quite variable. The following clinical observations were made in 15 patients with ECP from a classical Spanish series. Symptoms were usually present for less than three months, ranging from four days to 26 months. All patients had jugular venous distension and hepatomegaly. Eight patients had pericardial chest pain, fever, and a pericardial rub. Pulses paradoxus was seen in 10 patients. All patients were in normal sinus rhythm, and no patient had pericardial calcification. A number of clinical clues offer hints that a patient with suspected constriction may really have ECP. Pulses paradoxus, uncommon in constriction, is often present in ECP. Other useful signs include an absent pericardial knock, a sign pathognomonic for constriction, a wide descent that is less marked than expected, reflecting a slowing of early diastolic filling, and an absent Kussmaul sign, features more characteristic of tamponade. The diagnosis of ECP often first becomes apparent during pericardiocentesis in patients initially considered to have uncomplicated tamponade. By definition, in patients with ECP, pericardiocentesis fails to decrease the right atrial pressure by 50% or to a level 
below 10 millimeters of mercury. Echocardiographic findings suggestive of ECP include the presence of organized intrapericardial material, fibrinous strands, loculation, and pericardial rind, but these findings lack specificity. Doppler echocardiography has redefined the diagnosis of ECP. In the Mayo series prior to pericardiocentesis, the prevalence of respiratory septal shift, mitral inflow variation, hepatic vein flow reversal, and medial E-prime were greater in ECP than effusive pericarditis, respectively. Interestingly, clinical tamponade was noted in only 38% of the entire cohort and was not different, although it trended to be higher in those with versus those without ECP. Cardiac computed tomography and cardiac magnetic resonance may raise the suspicion of ECP before pericardiocentesis by providing evidence of pericardial thickening and inflammation and may confirm the diagnosis afterwards, as in our case. In addition, they may be helpful in identifying loculated and complex pericardial effusions, as may be seen in postoperative or tuberculous pericarditis. However, the visceral layer of pericardium responsible for the constrictive component of this process is often not thickened to a degree that is detectable on imaging studies. A subset of patients have evidence of active pericardial inflammation based on CMR, late gadolinium enhancement, which identifies patients likely to reverse the constrictive process with anti-inflammatory therapy. In the catheterization lab, prior to pericardiocentesis, ECP may be suspected by the unanticipated persistence of a V-wave in the right atrial pressure recording and wide descents that are intermediate between the blunted and steep wide descents typical of tamponade and constriction, respectively. After pericardiocentesis, the diagnosis is supported by findings of constricted pericarditis. It is important to consider that a persistently elevated right atrial pressure following pericardiocentesis may also be due to right heart failure or tricuspid regurgitation. Medical therapy should be directed at the underlying cause of ECP whenever possible. In cases with clear evidence of pericardial inflammation, a trial of anti-inflammatory agents is warranted. NSAIDs, colchicine, and corticosteroids have all been used with variable success, but randomized data are lacking. Immune-modulating drugs such as the IL-1 receptor antagonist anakinra have been used for persistent pericardial inflammation. Pericardiectomy should be reserved for refractory symptoms or clinical evidence of chronic constricted pericarditis such as anasarca, cachexia, atrial fibrillation, and hepatic dysfunction, and when undertaken, should remove the pericardium completely. It should be remembered that in ECP, it is usually the visceral rather than the parietal layer of pericardium that is responsible for the constriction. Therefore, if surgery is performed, a visceral pericardiectomy is generally required. Now, I would like to introduce Dr. Claire Sullivan, our Associate Program Director, who will further discuss our amazing cardiovascular fellowship here at University Hospital's Case Western Reserve University Program. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about our cardiovascular fellowship program at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center. Our fellows are truly the heart of our program. The overall goal of our cardiovascular fellowship program is to train highly competent clinical cardiologists who by the time of the program completion are capable of independent practice and are prepared for a transition to a productive academic career, whether that be in private practice, in an academic center, or in a subspecialty. 
We provide state-of-the-art evidence-based medicine for our cardiovascular fellows while they take care of and manage patients who are both inpatient and outpatient with a wide variety of cardiovascular disorders. Our program is truly designed to provide clinical knowledge, procedural skills, judgment, professionalism, and interpersonal skills that are required to make successful cardiologists in an academic center. There are four major strengths to our program. Number one, first and foremost, are the people within our program, from the fellows to our associate program director to our fellowship program director, and then the support staff and other faculty attendings. The people are very, very important at our academic center. Our fellows are truly the heart of our program. Our fellowship training program is extremely fellow-centric. The fellows feel supported and have their training and their education at the first and foremost goal of our program. And our job as faculty are to provide mentorship so that fellows can reach their personal and professional goals in the future. The second highlight of our program is the autonomy that our program provides to fellows. I think our fellows from day one are truly responsible for their patients. They have a lot of responsibilities while on call and in a cath lab doing procedures. It is this hands-on learning and true patient care that make the backbone of how fellows learn in our program in a setting that is very comfortable with the appropriate support, but always with the fellow being the one driving the decision-making and patient care within a team. It's very important that our fellows receive rigorous training so that they, at the end of three years, feel very confident going forward into this next stage of their career, whether that be a subspecialty and research and private practice or academics. For that reason, we have a very broad patient experience, both at university hospitals and at the Veterans Affairs VA Medical Center. So our fellows are exposed not only to bread and butter cardiology, but also to these strange zebra cases, whether the patients come in through the ER or are referred from tertiary medical centers or from other ambulatory sites within our system. Finally, I think a very important piece of our fellowship is the mentorship that we provide, and our faculty are extremely invested in the professional and personal growth of our fellows. It's very important from day one to build a strong and lasting relationship with each fellow and fellows also, whether by working with different faculty members on wards or on various research projects, have the opportunity to identify and build a lasting relationship with a faculty member who can provide advice, whether professional, personal advice, to successfully reach that next stage of their career. Wow. What an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Cardio Nerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all of the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Vivian Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S-do and split. Boop.